You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopoly through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Listeners, we're joined by Professor Michael Hudson. He is the author of Super Imperialism, The Bubble and Beyond, J is for Junk Economics, and in just a few weeks, the book release and Forgive Them Their Debts. You see him regularly on maxkaiser.com, RT News, and uh, all the rest. Michael, great to have you on the show again. Look, I wanted to discuss this week the unintended outcomes from globalization. It seems that... uh, we're well aware of the backlash against globalization, but uh, way back when Ricardo was was developing the theory of comparative advantage of one nation specializing in uh, uh, sheep production, for example, another one wheat, uh, did he, as a banker, expect that uh, the role of finance and rent-seeking in general would be such a, a great drain on the economy? That was his objective. He was a banker. He was the lobbyist uh, for the banker, uh, just as people like uh, Paul Krugman in America are the lobbyists for the uh, bankers today. Uh, he wa- his, uh, at that time, the major customer of uh, banks was international trade and foreign currency dealing. And the reason goes way back to the 11th and 12th century, when a Catholic doctrine had banned the charging of interest Uh, is illegal under the Bible, but it had permitted foreign exchange dealings and uh, the charge of agio, which was the foreign exchange premium for money changing, which is how uh, bankers had made most of their money throughout uh, history. And uh, so the bankers basically used uh, foreign trade as a means of uh, being able to work interest charges into uh, their financing. And the foreign exchange was permitted during the Crusades because many of the Crusaders needed to uh, be able to put uh, money on deposit in England or France and be able to withdraw as they went on uh, looting and killing people uh, all through uh, the Near East uh, to sack uh, uh, the Byzantine Empire and destroy uh, what then was the leading uh, parts of civilization. Uh, so in order to finance this destruction, the church had to permit agio as uh, something moral, just as they, it was uh, moral to kill everybody who wasn't uh, didn't believe the way they did. So Ricardo had expected, if you have an international division of labor, and uh, England produces all of the manufacturers, and uh, other countries are uh, what the Bible called hewers of wood and drawers of water, they'll produce the raw materials, and uh, instead of each country being self-sufficient, in which case they wouldn't need international trade, and uh, 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 therefore foreign exchange payments, uh, everybody would be uh, trading with each other, generating enormous uh, foreign exchange profits for Ricardo's class, the banks. So the cover story is trade, but really what's happening behind the scenes is uh, the currency exchange, the the easy money making from such activities. And uh, as we forward through uh, history, similar sort of angles are happening with the carry trade. And uh, now with America looking to continue to increase interest rates, that's really playing havoc with uh, many nations' uh, exchange rates. Yes, that's the uh, idea. 
And the reason is that uh, other countries are going to have such a problem uh, servicing their debts, which are denominated in dollars, and the dollars are rising in currency against local currencies, uh, the peso, the escudo, or whatever it is. So countries' uh, debt service becomes much, much higher in their own currencies, and they're broke. How are they going to balance their payment and uh, prevent devaluation? If they let uh, their currencies devalue when they can't pay the debts, then uh, their labor becomes cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, uh, and we've won. We've been able to win the class war and lower living standards throughout the world, which is America's foreign, the foreign policy of America. American corporations. Or even better, if the countries try to stabilize their balance of payments and prevent a domestic revolution as uh, wage levels fall, then they'll have to privatize uh, the public sector. They'll have to sell off more and more of the public domain to the creditors, and the creditors will foreclose and then treat all of these privatized monopolies as rent extraction opportunities, vastly increasing the charges that countries have pay. The objective of globalization, American style, is to impose a global feudalism where other countries pay the entire economic surplus to the American financial system. Yes, well, that end game, uh, have, have, I mean, how much further can it go? Uh, here on The Renegade Economist, I have highlighted the dangers of uh, rental-backed mortgage securities for a number of years. This corporatization of uh, uh, the rental market is playing out before our eyes. And uh, you just wonder what new elements of the public domain can be privatized. I think still one of your best examples is the privatization of the Chicago uh, pavements, the sidewalks. Uh, what do you think uh, is left for the 1% to privatize? Gee, so much. The air, the water, the communication systems, the transport systems, the roads will become uh, toll roads, the sidewalks will become toll sidewalks, uh, the air you will have to charge, the water you will have to charge as uh, the oil industry uh, pollutes it, uh, the food prices will go way up as uh, the artificial fertilizers kill off the honeybees and as the global warming creates a drought that uh, creates famine throughout much of the world. There's so much to privatize. Uh, and the objective is really to cut the world population by about 50%. By starvation, uh, suicide, early death, that's sort of Wall Street's game plan because you really don't need people. All you need is enough people to give you all of the resources of, of the country and uh, everybody who exists for some purpose other than to pay their resources to the United States, from the United States point of view, has no economic function. Well, that's where this backlash is coming against globalization. The fact that so many middle class workers, former manufacturing types in America are unemployed or underemployed and they've lost their, their standing in society. They have uh, fueled the rise of people like Donald Trump. And uh, for me, I think we're at this really interesting cross section where I've sort of seen that there's this post-globalization economic model of uh, big houses, big debt, big infrastructure and big immigration all driving this housing construction property speculation that feeds the beast of banking with ever higher mortgages coming through. So 
Yeah, the, the role of immigration around the world is certainly something that uh, I imagine these uh, long-term planners for the 1% have thought about that immigration and the tensions that that brings is uh, a very handy diversion. But uh, for you to say that depopulation is uh, the end goal, what is going to drive the rising value of all of these natural monopolies, including land, if that is the case? Uh, what drives monopoly is usually political power to give them uh, a legal uh, right to prevent any uh, alternative so that they can say whether they're selling uh, transportation or phone service or water or food, uh, your money or your life. The ideal of every monopolist is to get into the position, your money or your life, if uh, we are the only supplier of something basic that you need in order to live, so you can't uh, deal without us. And uh, they get together with other monopolists, and you know what does the monopoly class want as a whole? They want all of the revenue in society over and above bare subsistence levels. Well, that's what feudalism was. So feudalism is the idea of the end of history. And when people like Fukuyama write uh, the end of history, we're now in the perfect neoliberal ideal, uh, this is the end of history. The Dark Ages after Rome was one end of history. Uh, it was feudalism, and history stopped, basically, for a few hundred years. That's really the ideal. That's uh, the kind of stability uh, that they want, uh, just uh, a stability of absolute austerity for the population at the bottom with all of the wealth concentrated right at the top of the pyramid to lord it over the rest of society. Whilst that might be an objective, uh, past uh, scholars such as Frederick List uh, way back in the 19th century were talking about how the greater the wealth gap, uh, the more the wealthy have to spend on security and protection. And sure, we see that with uh, the US defence budget, but on a micro level, uh, these sort of uh, uh, gated communities and private security guards and so forth, uh, is that really going to feel like freedom, even for the 0.01%? When the lords of England built their castles and had moats around them to keep the riffraff out uh, or other uh, nobles from attacking them, they loved other castles with a moat. Uh, John, someday I guess you'd get them, the McMansions here, each having a moat around it, uh, gated communities. They feel uh, that that creates a comradeship. That's their security. That's like having a lock on your doors, uh, uh, so to speak, against uh, the rest of the crowd. So uh, they were quite happy. The nobles all dealt with each other as peers. And uh, as long as they had a monopoly of force, which goes with the uh, political monopoly, they thought that that was the best of all possible worlds. Hmm. Well, time will tell on that one how leaders like Trump uh, create these diversions so that uh, the rent-seeking can continue uh, and the blame game of uh, blaming the poor for their own problems uh, evolves and into uh, more and more distractions. But, uh, yeah, let's... Let's move on. Uh, listeners, we're talking with Professor Michael Hudson from michael-hudson.com, author of so many books and someone who's really helped lift my analysis in terms of modern economic warfare. And Michael, uh, when we look at economic warfare, probably 
what's driving a lot of this trade battle between America and China is the development of the BRICS network and uh, the amount of trade that's going on in non-denominated US dollars between uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. Uh, I haven't seen statistics on that. Uh, Are you aware of whether this is growing in significance? Uh, certainly, every uh, country that's doing it has announced that is a national policy. And uh, yesterday, on uh, September 24th, the European uh, Union announced that they wanted to be free not only of the U.S. dollar as a pariah currency, but the SWIFT bank clearing system. Because the United States is threatened by the rest of the world, one thing you need in order to live is you need to clear your bank balances to make payments. And we will come and electronically destroy all of your uh, communications of any country that deals with Iran or buys Iranian oil, or uh, we want you to buy American gas at twice the price of Russian gas. If you let uh, Russia do gas, we're going to wreck your banking system, and you won't be able to go to the store and buy anything. If you deal with Iranian uh, oil or uh, country, any country we don't like, we can wreck you. And that's what Donald Trump has said, and uh, uh, that basically is the policy. We will wreck any country or at least assassinate its leaders that do anything that we don't absolutely control. That has been spelled out verbally again and again and again by the U.S. uh, neocons. Well, Europe yesterday came out and said, we're going to have a new bank clearing system. We probably will not let the United States have any access to it. Because if we let the United States have access to the computer clearing system, so if you, when you make a payment, uh, write a check or write a credit card from one person's bank to another, it goes through the uh, the SWIFT uh, uh, clearing system. Uh, They're they're essentially making the whole financial uh, and commercial life independent of the United States. So the United States is now being treated as a pariah country, much as uh, the Soviet Union was uh, in the early Cold War years, except the United States is sort of doing it to itself by saying everything that you need from us, we want the ability to stop if you're dependent on our agriculture, we want to uh, stop uh, feeding you like we uh, stopped the grain exports to China in the 1950s to try to make it give up communism. Uh, And uh, as we're trying to break up Germany's ability to deal with Russia uh, and Iran today. So uh, when uh, President Trump today, uh, September 25th, uh, gave a speech uh, before the United Nations and uh, talked about uh, the uh, awful danger that Germany was letting itself into by buying Russian gas and oil, the uh, TV cameras shifted to the uh, Germans in the United Nations and you could see them all giggling. Uh, among themselves, because they knew also yesterday that the the splitting of the monetary system is now spread, not only Russia and China uh, and Iran, much of the fight against Iran happened after they overthrew the dictator, uh, the Shah and his torture uh, regime. They had been paying their foreign debts uh, right along. They'd already put the deposit in Chase Manhattan Bank to pay the bondholders, and Chase simply didn't pay. So Iran was declared in default, but it didn't default. Iran was declared in default because uh, Chase Manhattan uh, refused to uh, make the payment because David Rockefeller said he was a good friend of the torture chiefs of Iran. He said, these these torturers, they're my friends. You know, we're not going to let them be overthrown and have the people put in people who 
are not torturing their fellow Iranians. So, uh, I mean, when you look at this episode, the evil of these people and the evil of the American system saying, we will kill you if, and overthrow you if uh, you don't let us take your oil, if you don't let us take your commanding heights, if you don't let us privatize uh, your public domain. This is uh, a declaration of economic war against the rest of the world. But the rest of the world no longer is even frightened of it. They're just, they were laughing at the United States today because they, they realize they, they've seen the game, they see there's a war, and the United States uh, as a democracy is uh, muscle-bound. The only kind of war, military war, that a democracy can fight is atomic war. There will never be another military draft in the United States. And without a military draft, without manpower, America has to use its foreign legion, which is ISIS and Al-Qaeda, basically, terrorists. And Al-Qaeda can't go to that many countries. It really operates only in the uh, Middle East. And without uh, having an American army capable of physically invading, America can't really do anything except bomb other countries. It's not like uh, the old wars where there'd be a military invasion and a settlement. It's really the nuclear diplomacy. And uh, I think Putin has spelled this out uh, and uh, his foreign minister Lavrov in a number of uh, speeches. It's all become uh, quite, uh, quite clear. With U.S. military spending again heading upwards, I remember uh, this uh, incredible 90-second uh, uh, statement you made on the show a number of years ago. I'm just going to insert that. So basically, when a foreign country runs a balance of payment surplus, or when the United States military spends uh, enough dollars abroad, these dollars are all turned over to the central banks like they were turned over to General de Gaulle's France in the 60s. The central banks turn around and uh, use these dollar inflows to buy uh, U.S. Treasury bills. So basically, the U.S. Treasury bills uh, are uh, financed, the U.S. domestic budget deficit. So it's military spending, creating a balance of payments deficit, creating a dollar glut for foreign central banks, that is used to finance the domestic budget deficit that's military in nature. So under the current international financial system, foreign country savings of their, their central bank reserves are held in the form of loans to the Defense Department, the U.S. military, to surround them with military bases so they can say, if you don't do what we want, if you don't join our uh, finance organizations, if you don't finance our trade, if you make your pipelines go through countries that we don't like, if you make your pipelines go through Shiite countries instead of Sunni countries, then uh, we're going to use our military bases to shoot you down, or we'll have our allies shoot you down, like we had uh, Turkey shoot down uh, uh, the Russian plane. So essentially, foreign countries are, are financing their own oppression. So with that subtle subsidy for U.S. dollars uh, disappearing, uh, American uh, financial power and military power is uh, on the wane. Uh, how much more likely is it that uh, a maverick leader such as Donald Trump is going to turn towards MMT and uh, look to uh, print money to uh, uh, get himself out of trouble? 
Uh, he's quite likely to do that. Remember, uh, this was started by President Obama, uh, who's created uh, under quantitative easing $4.3 trillion of uh, Federal Reserve credit that has financed uh, the bond market, the stock market, and the real estate market. And an equal amount of, of over $4 trillion has been created by the European Central Bank to buy Amer uh, European stocks and bonds. So right now, what's supporting the stock market in American Europe is largely central bank purchases. Uh, it's not uh, uh, mom and pop. It's not uh, the uh, middle class that's buying stocks. Uh, they're net sellers. It's uh, the central bank. So there is a kind of horrific parody of MMT in creating money to give to the finance uh, insurance and real estate sector, the fire sector, not to spend into the economy, not to employ labor, not to cr build new factories to make new means of production, but solely to inflate uh, the price of assets, stocks, bonds, and real estate. Yes, well, that is the danger. And, uh, Michael, uh, that's why we need some sort of monopoly rent tax to be uh, imposed around the world to, uh, you know, if these nation states can call to account the, 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 the monetary game, the currency game, the 1% still within Russia, still uh, within China, uh, are fueling these incredible land bubbles uh, through massive infrastructure spends and so forth. Well, how do you see that play rolling out? The 1% obviously is still going to stay in power, but we're going to have this breakdown of global trade as uh, the rent-seeking continues uh, nation by nation. Uh, how best can we get some sort of monopoly rent tax uh, imposed? I don't see it politically. There's no uh, group or no ideology at present that uh, advocates a rent tax. I don't know of any. There's a fringe right-wing group that backs it, the Henry George groups, but since they back, they're libertarians. They back the right wing of the uh, spectrum. So uh, if you're against... Yes, in America and England. So if you if your ideology is small government, then uh, you're you're against basically against the rent tax uh, because only a strong government will be strong enough to take on the rentier class. Only a strong government can take on the financial class that stands behind the landlord class and the uh, monopoly class. Finance is the mother of monopoly, and finance is the main funder and controller of uh, the real estate uh, sector. And unless you have a ideology that fights for a government strong enough to a fight against the libertarians, against the privatizers, against uh, the neoliberals, then you're really not going to get anywhere. It's just going to be uh, complaining. Let's switch then to uh, your historical perspective with uh, the new book and forgive them their debts. Now, it really blew me away uh, uh, reading this and seeing this entire, you know, in terms of the sort of misinformation we've discussed in today's show, uh, there can be none bigger than what the Bible meant. Now, how have you been able to reveal this entirely new perspective on uh, what the Bible was about? Until people had translated cuneiform uh, in the late 19th century, 
That, that's clay tablets, listeners. Yes, Mesopotamian, Sumerian, and Babylonian writing from the Bronze Age, essentially 3200 BC to about 1200 BC, until they translated the Babylonian uh, literature and the laws of uh, Hammurabi and uh, his uh, dynasty and uh, the Sumerian laws that went before in the neighboring Near Eastern countries. They didn't know what was meant by phrases in Hebrew in the Bible, uh, even though the Greek translations made it pretty clear. So, for instance, when uh, Jesus uh, gave his first uh, reported sermon uh, in Luke, he unrolled the scroll of Isaiah and said he had come to proclaim the year of the Lord. Well, the year of the Lord meant the Jubilee year. And uh, the word that Isaiah and uh, uh, the other parts of the Bible used for the debt cancellation, the clean slate, the Jubilee year, was Duror which was a cognate to Babylonian Andorion. So you have for the last maybe 50 years, a new interpretation of the Bible, basically seeing that it was redacted or composed by the, uh, the wealthy, uh, uh, educated Jewish families who had returned from uh, what was called the exile in Babylonia and gone back to Judea. And it was the returnees that recast the whole uh, history of uh, uh, Judah and Israel basically is a class war of creditors against debtors and of landlords against uh, the rest of society seeking to monopolize uh, all of the land. And uh, the, the combination of archaeology and Assyriology, the translation of uh, the words, meant uh, you can now understand uh, what the Hebrew and the Greek words that the Bible used were instead of just believing that when Jesus talked about sin, the word for sin and debt is the same in Hebrew, just as it is in the Indo-European language, schuld or in German or devoir in, uh, in French. So uh, we used it as a takeoff point, all of this tradition of uh, Babylonian debt cancellations by every new ruler taking the throne. And people believed that uh, the Jubilee was just uh, a myth, that you couldn't have redistributed the land. To, you couldn't have given the land back to debtors who had uh, forfeited them to foreclosing creditors. Uh, you couldn't have uh, canceled the debts because nobody would lend money. But they didn't realize that uh, most debts were arrears of taxes. They were debts. They were money that had mounted up unpaid. They weren't loans. And when they realized that for 2,000 years, Babylonia, Sumer, Near Eastern countries had normally continued to cancel the debts in order to have a clean slate, in order to prevent economic polarization, then they realized that the Bible was part of a, uh, and what Jesus was urging, was part of a practice that was had been widespread for thousands of years and which worked. That wasn't a utopian idea because we have the lawsuits about them. We have the legal records. Uh, we have a mass of historical documentation that uh, people didn't have uh, before about 50 years ago. Incredible. So a whole new light has been cast on what Jesus' main thrust, what his main discussion was about. Yes. Uh, one friend of mine summarized that Jesus came uh, to cancel your debts, not your sins. Well, of course, he did talk about the sin aspect also, but uh, the reason he was put to death was that the Pharisees, the uh, wealthy Orthodox uh, Jewish uh, rabbinical uh, school led by Hillel, represented the creditors, and uh, they felt threatened by him. To them, the big, most revolutionary statement you could make was, don't pay the creditors 
Otherwise, they're going to end up with all the money in the land and you're going to be poor, just as the prophets uh, said. And uh, so uh, as soon as Jesus gave his uh, uh, speech in the uh, the synagogue, Luke writes that the population got very upset and thought of uh, driving him out. But of course, he got more and more followers uh, by the debtors. And what he did at that time was exactly what was happening in Rome, the debtor uh, uh, wars, uh, the civil war that went 100 years between 133 and 29 BC. The same thing was happening in Greece, uh, in Macedonia, in uh, Cappadocia, Asia Minor, uh, the, now Turkey. It was happening all around the region. And people have now put it in the, in the perspective of its times. Well, Michael Hudson, I'll put some links to uh, some very interesting interviews you've done in more detail on those topics uh, in the show notes. Thanks so much for joining us here on 3CR's Renegade Economists. It's always good to be here, Carol. Don't be frustrated. Why shouldn't I be? What's wrong? Nothing. 